Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. You know, I, I think first and foremost, Dan, you just have to set your goals on, on what it is you want to do in the business, you know, and have a dream and, and put it out there. And then don't ever say no. You know, if somebody asks, if you want to be a sportscaster and somebody says, hey, we need a camera operator for the newscast on Saturday morning at 3 a.m., you say, yes, I'll be there at 2.30, ready to go. That is Gonzaga men's basketball play-by-play broadcaster, Greg Heister. He's Dan Dickow's longtime friend and co-worker, and he's today's guest. Welcome to Dan Dickow's quarantine series on the Scorebook Live Today podcast. As the world of sports is shut down due to the coronavirus, we're ramping things up a notch here at Scorebook Live. Every weekday, Dan interviews an expert in the world of sports, from star hoopers and coaches like Steve Kerr, Jamal Crawford, and Doug Christie, to seven-time Mr. Olympia bodybuilder Phil Heath. We hope you're entertained and maybe learn a thing or two as we navigate these uncertain times. The easiest way to tune in is by subscribing. In addition to our weekly Washington High School Sports News and Conversation podcast released Thursdays, hosted by myself, Andy Bueller, fellow reporter Todd Millis, Dan is bringing you interviews just like this one delivered five days a week. Head to wherever you get your podcast, subscribe for free, and while you're there, leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Before we get to Dan's interview today, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Washington Federal. Washington Federal is a local bank and portfolio lender with more than 200 branches across eight states, more than 32,000 fee-free ATMs, 24-7 online and mobile banking with drive-up ATMs. And Washington Federal is a proud sponsor of Scorebook Live. They care deeply about high school sports and the communities that support them across the entire state of Washington. Head to WFDBank.com to learn how they can help you meet your financial goals. That's WAFDBank.com. Washington Federal, a neighbor you can count on. We hope everybody's staying safe and healthy. We're just as excited for high school sports to return as you are. Now, Dan Dickow. Dan Dickow, Scorebook Live, today with our quarantine series podcast where we come to you once a day as opposed to once a week, and we come with a conversation with an expert in the field of sports. I know a lot of times I say it's a special guest, and truly they are, but today's is special for another reason. He's a co-worker of mine. Uh, you may have heard some of our banter back and forth over the last seven, eight years on Gonzaga basketball broadcasts on SWX, KHQ, and Root in the Northwest. A good friend of mine, Greg Heister. Greg, welcome to the show. How's everything uh, going for you in, in Spokane today? Hi, Dan. I'm doing good. Just, uh, you know, just another day. I, I call it, what, what are we, like day 60 now of Groundhog's Day. It's just, you know, these days just kind of repeat and we do the same things. So read some books, tie some flies, go for some walks and, and wait for, uh, you know, something good to come along. Well, you mentioned uh, reading some books, but more importantly for you, tying some flies. Uh, that has become a big passion of yours. And I'm sure we'll get into that in the conversation later on. But I want to talk about your upbringing, your, your youth. Um, you grew up as somebody who loved sports. 
at what point did you realize sports might not be your calling to play, but you still wanted to be around sports? Oh, I don't know, maybe third grade, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you know, I grew up in a little tiny town and uh, at the time there were about 2000 people that lived there. So you can imagine there weren't many kids in the neighborhoods. And so uh, if you had any desire to play, I mean, you played, they need you to, they needed you to play, but I grew up in a great time there when there were enough kids, uh, you know, peewee football, I can remember playing in third, fourth, fifth and, and up. And there were, I think, five different teams. There were enough kids to, to field five different teams. And so, you know, I, I grew up playing football. Uh, Little League baseball started at an early age. We didn't really have basketball to the seventh grade. Uh, I got into golf uh, later in high school. I think I I hit my first golf ball in, as a sophomore in college. And so sports were always a part of, of life there, as they are in most small towns. And, you know, what I liked about it most, I mean, you really grew up with them. Like there's today, you know, even in a city like Spokane, when you're going to one elementary school and then a middle school and then a high school and uh, you're you're just being bounced around all of the time. I, I love my upbringing, and sports were a big part of that. Uh, and you know, we we didn't live far from the school, and in the marching band. You know, back in the day when they had marching bands with high schools, we could sit on our back porch at the house and hear the marching band playing up in the football field as practicing. So, uh, knowing that they're preparing for that Saturday's football game, so. Uh, sports is a big deal you know those parades and and everybody got together and they we all wore our little league uniforms and walked the streets of port new york and uh it was a great great time well i was never very good at sports <laughs> as you might imagine but uh, i love playing and uh, i love being on the teams and and doing all of that it was great so you mentioned playing all the multiple sports growing up and you get to college. Uh, it's time to start figuring out a career path, or at least it is for most people. Uh, is that the point in time where you decided, Hey, I love sports. I want to be around it. I wanted to get it, get into the sports broadcasting field. No, it, it, it actually happened a lot earlier than that. You know, I can remember uh, 1980 it was like, I think it was January 21st, 1980. And it was Super Bowl thirteen, and it was Pittsburgh and the Dallas Cowboys. The game was called by Kurt Gowdy, Merlin Olson, uh, and I think John Brody was there as well. And I can remember setting my little audio recorder next to that television to record it because I was a Steelers fan, and I wanted to record it. You know, we didn't, our family didn't have a VCR or any way of, of recording the audio, but I recorded the audio tape of that. And I used to remember that, and it dawned on me one day shortly after, and I'm, what, 13 years old or something at that point in time. I said, wow, isn't this cool that Kurt Gowdy's voice will always be connected to this game? Like it's a legacy that will go on forever. And anytime anybody ever watched the replay of Super Bowl thirteen or remember that game, one of the greatest Super Bowls ever, uh, that voice will be remembered. Kurt Gowdy was also the uh, the host of the American Sportsman at the time, which was the first great outdoors television show. So I don't know, probably by 15 years old, I knew in my brain I wanted to be Kurt Gowdy. 
And so I set out to, to do play-by-play -play and to get into television and to produce outdoors television. And uh, in a weird way, we've, we've been doing it for a while. Not at his level, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's been great. And so uh, it's given me a lot. And then uh, it's, it's just been a great deal. That's awesome. I didn't understand and realize that it became a, such a big passion of yours at a young age. Uh, I did know you were a big time Steelers fan. We always happen to get into conversations about yeah. that. And I just have to kind of plead ignorance because I don't know much about the, the, the football <laughs> Steelers teams yeah. of those eras. But yeah. you had one of your uh, breakthrough moments as a sports broadcaster working in the Cleveland market, if I'm not mistaken, at a time where Cleveland was very good, but there was a Chicago Bulls team that was up and coming. So you got to see quite a few of these really good classic Bulls Cavs games up close. What kind of memories can you share about those days? Well, <clears throat> so I worked at a station called WJW, which at the time was a juggernaut. It was uh, right there in Cleveland and I got hired right out of college there and it was a great job. Didn't pay a lot of money, but I was the sports producer for the five, six, and eleven o'clock broadcasts with Vince Cellini, uh, John Telich, and at the time uh, Casey Coleman. And so, what that afforded me, Dan, was to get to you know Municipal Stadium during the summer and watch the Cleveland Indians play all the time. It allowed me to get to Municipal Stadium. You know, they play at Jacobs Field now. This is back before uh, they played in that that old mistake by the lake they used to call it, but. Uh, and so I watched the Cleveland Browns up close, but I also got to go down at the time it was the Cavs played at Richfield Coliseum, uh, down closer to Akron than, than actually in Cleveland. And so it was a 40, 45 minute drive South of Cleveland. So I used to go down there a lot and, uh, do interviews obviously, and, and hang out and watch the games. And, uh, you know, anytime Michael came to Cleveland, it was just, and Cleveland was great at the time. I mean, you know, I'm sure everybody out there has been watching the documentary and they've touched on it some, you know, it was a big deal at that era for a team to win 50 games. And it was three or four years in a row that that Cleveland team won, won over 50 games. And it was loaded with great players. I mean, they haven't talked about Hot Rod Williams. I mean, he signed one of the first big mega deals in, in the NBA uh, during that time. Of course, Brad Doherty, uh, Larry Nance, Mark Price, and Elo. I mean, it was great and a great team. But when Michael came, Dan, as you can imagine, uh, and this documentary has done a tremendous job kind of reflecting on all of that. I mean, it was just a different energy. I mean, it was just a, just a different energy. And you knew you were watching something great. And, you know, it, it's I'm, I'm really glad we're getting to watch all of these things again. And, and not just, you know, I hear this all the time so the young people can realize how great Michael Jordan is. Well, I don't know how important that is. It's been great for me to go back and relive the energy of what Michael Jordan was. I'm a guy who happens to love dynasties in sports because it's greatness at its ultimate level to me. These people that can get a team or a program at the top and keep it there are transcendent. And you knew right away that Michael Jordan was a transcendent player. We have LeBron James today, uh, the same sort of transcendent player when they can get their teams and and not lose the desire to win at that level, you know, uh, not to lose the eye. Right. And uh, I don't know. I've, I've always had great appreciation for players like that. And so I, I love dynasties and uh, those are great days in Cleveland though, man. They were really cool. 
Yeah, I've, I've heard you tell stories about some of those games before, and I just thought it would be interesting to hear your perspective on all the different things that you were involved in at the start of your young career. But you mentioned the documentary, The Last Dance, and it's brought back tremendous memories for me as a kid, and I love sharing it with my boys right now. Um, hey, I watched that game live on TV. I recorded that one and watched yeah. it 20 different times. Uh, Craig Elo is a guy that has become a really good friend of yours. Yeah. Uh, before myself and Richard Fox joined the broadcast, Craig Elo uh, was your analyst. He's one of the greatest guys in the world. Um, yeah. So you got to know him by covering him, but now you got to know him and become a great friend working with him. Yeah. What do you say to Craig Elo when that shot keeps getting brought up time and time again? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't say much to him other than, you know, kind of chuckle with them and, and have fun with it. Right. But, uh, you know, look, I mean, it's, it's great to be remembered. It, and I, I am, you know, they kind of brushed over kind of casually in the documentary, but Elo scored 15 points in that fourth quarter, including what could have been an acrobatic finish in the game winner. If Michael Jordan doesn't hit that shot at the other end. And so, you know, I mean, he's, he, he points that out quickly, and he, he'll also say to you, look, Michael had his best games against me, but he also had his worst games against me. And Lenny Wilkins took Elo, you know, wherever he went in his career. And I think oftentimes it was to defend. And so Ron Harper's line in that deal, like, it was crazy to me. Elo was in position, played great defense. Michael hung in the air, changed the shot, and hit a jumper that he probably would have done against anybody ever. And that's just the kind of guy he was, Dan. But, you know, with Elo, my – my life kind of came full circle, right? So I kind of covered him in Cleveland, and then I end up in Spokane. He ends up in Spokane. He's not from here. I'm not from here. We end up working together. But back in high school, when I read that book, and I had to do a report. It was called So You Want to Be a Sportscaster, and it was written by a guy named Ken Coleman, who was the voice of the, the uh, Cleveland Browns during the era of Jim Brown and also the Boston Red Sox in the 1950s. And so Hall of Fame broadcaster. Anyways, I get my first job in television, and I work, my boss is a guy named Casey Coleman, and it was Ken Coleman's father, or uh, son. And so my life, I started with this book, I ended up working for uh, Casey Coleman. I end up, you know, I start covering Craig Elo, and, you know, all those years later, I end up working with him. And Craig, you know, Jeff Brown was the first guy that I called the games with, and then Elo, uh, and then yourself and, and Richard, and, you know, I've just learned so much. I mean, to be able to hang out with guys uh that have reached such pinnacles athletically you know you get to because you know, I, I didn't play college basketball I didn't play in the NBA and so although I can talk the games there is a uh, a minute amount of just stuff that I don't think unless you're there day in and day out that you're ever gonna pick up on it so uh, I've learned a lot from from people like Craig Elo, people like yourself, Jeff Brown, Richard Fox about basketball. I don't always agree with it, but <laughs> I've learned a lot. Agree with, I mean, agreeing a, with it is it's another been great thing. That way. It's a, yeah, yeah, that's a great but, comment. Agreeing um, with it is uh, completely a different thing, and and I know that um, to stay on this topic of documentaries, you know, we we touched on the Last Dance. You are an expert a true expert in a unique sport and you're kind of the, the guiding voice in that sport because of a documentary that put that you put together um, every year. I don't think a lot of people know this about you, but 
you have covered the Iditarod now, the, the classic Alaskan dog sled race for a number of years. How did that come about? And just how difficult is that race and how unique is your kind of position within that race and that documentary? Yeah, well, a lot of questions in that. And so I, I did a run. I moved to a, I took a job, you know, I'm an outdoors guy. I like to be outdoors. And so I worked in Cleveland for two years and I just, I took a flyer and, and accepted a job up at a station in, in Anchorage, Alaska, because I wanted to get outdoors and I wanted to get to a smaller place while I was still young and I could adventure. So I ended up at a station called Kimo TV or KIMO. At the time it was the ABC affiliate and they were the official station of the Iditarod sled dog race. And what that meant is that they broadcasted the live start, the live finish, and we went out on the trail from start to finish uh, covering the race and, and bringing it back to our audience. And uh, the other local stations covered it as well, but obviously they didn't put the resource on track. So I went out there and immediately fell in love with it. And, you know, <clears throat> the, the dogs are the greatest athletes on this planet. Uh, the country is just amazing to to be in and where those dog teams travel through and and the different native communities along the trail that you get to visit. It's a cultural experience. It's a historical experience. It's one of the most amazing sporting events, competitive events. Uh, the people that run the race in many cases, you know, the really competitive ones are highly educated uh, they're extremely articulate. They, uh, but yet they've—they're the hardest working people I've ever been around. And for many of them, you know, it's a lifestyle that either puts them in poverty. First and foremost, responsibility is making sure that their dogs are safe and healthy. So, it—it uh, it just began a love affair, Dan. I—I love to tell stories. I love to write. I love to be around uh, these stories. And I, I just don't think in sports, honestly. And you may laugh at this. I don't think there's a better story to tell in sports than the Iditarod sled dog race. Extremely competitive. Uh, the, the thresholds between winning and losing are really tiny, much like you see, you know, that we're witnessing in the last dance uh, with Michael Jordan. And uh, it's, it's just been a love affair. I've done it since 1992. I've done, I don't know, 25 of these things now or something like that. And we do a big post-race documentary after it. And, which is what I wanted to do when I got into this business was to produce outdoors television. So I do that with the Iditarod, with the small company here that I kind of run out of my house called Green Highlander Productions. And uh, we've been doing it a long time. I'm, I've become kind of the voice of the thing. I anchor all the live starts and the, the restarts and the finish. And, and again, a lot like Kurt Gowdy and, you know, in the Super Bowl in 1980, uh, my voice is kind of associated with uh, the Iditarod. And so um, you know, it's, that's important to me. And, and it's, it's part of my legacy. I think whether it's large, small really doesn't make any difference to me. Uh, it's a community that I care about and, and we've done a lot of great work for it. And I've got a lot of great guys that, that work on that event with me. You know, it's, a it's really tough. I mean, it's 40, 50 below zero that we're out there running camera gear. We're not sleeping much. We're not, there's no hotels, there's no beds, there's no, you know, oftentimes we're just eating M&Ms and, and uh, making our way down the trail for 10 or 12 days. So uh, it's a great time. 
you know, I, I can hear the passion in your voice. And I've always felt that if you're going to be successful at anything, you've got to have a, a big time passion for that and attack your goals, dreams, whatever they may be. You have a chance to be around the Gonzaga basketball program a lot because, as mentioned, you've, you've been the play-by-play uh, television announcer for quite some time. But you also, uh, in addition to that role, you, you, you host the Mark Few show, which is kind of like a week, weekly uh, sit-down interview show with Coach Few and kind of talk about the current state of affairs within the program in, in the season. How has that allowed you to get to know Coach Few? Um, better than just going to a practice, which we as broadcasters do as part of our prep and just watch, to be able to ask him more questions and, and understand his passion. Um, how would you describe working with Coach Few on that show? And I think because he and I have spent so much time together uh, outside of basketball, you know, that, that very first year that I got the Gonzaga contract was your senior year, right? The year that, that you lit up and school lit up and, and frankly it lit me up and so I traveled with the team I was you know I mean I was I was given this responsibility of calling these games something that I'd waited a long time for the opportunity and I needed to learn right I needed to learn a lot and I mean I, I'm like most basketball fans I can talk the game I can do all of these things and so I spent a lot of time at practice those years uh, especially on the road if you guys practice I was there when I uh, when we were at home I tried to go to practice two or three times a week just to be there to build relationships. And, and that really can, I can remember even in, during Mo's years, even when I wasn't doing radio anymore, I was at practice when they were home here in town a lot. I can remember days when Fuey would look at me and he's like, Heister, what are you doing here? I'm like, Hey man, it's like, I get to watch one of the greatest teams in the country right out right now on a daily basis and come to practice and, and learn and, and see all of these guys, uh, you know, uh, kind of fight it out during the season. And so uh, I just think, and then obviously we fish together a lot and uh, I've just spent a lot of time around him. I think I know him well and, and uh, I can say things to him and we can laugh about it and we can get away with it. And there's kind of like a little brotherhood thing there, I think. And I just have the utmost respect for the guy uh, from both an individual basis, you know, professionally it speaks for itself, Dan. I mean, you know, we don't even need to go in that. I mean, he's one of the great coaches now in college basketball history. And what he's done here in Spokane in this, in this program is, I think it's unprecedented in the history of college basketball. I'm sure it's happened somewhere way, way, way back when that maybe uh, Jerry Krause can tell us about. But uh, I just think it's unprecedented. All that stands for itself. But as a human, he's a great dude, uh, very committed to his family, very loyal. And, uh, and he's always there. So... Uh, you know, I have a love for the guy. And, and because of that, I think, you know, doing the Mark Few show, we can just sit up there and have fun. And whether it's a win or a loss that after that, uh, that we get to sit down and do that show, he and I can can work our way through it and uh, and try to have some laughs with it. You know, you know this, like I don't, you know, whenever I'm in front of a camera or a live broadcast of whether it's live on tape or actually live, like we're not laughing and having fun. What's the sense? You know, and so that's what, you know, uh, I try to do that with Fuey. It's, it, the best shows with him, with the Mark Few show, are the ones that we can laugh about stuff. And generally, it's him kind of digging into me about something. But uh, we can laugh and have fun with it. So uh, that's that's been great. And, I, geez, that's over a decade long now, too, that I've been doing that show with him. So it's it's been good. It's wow, been Greg, good. You're, you're 
kind of dating yourself a little bit, saying that show's <laughs> been 10 years. You've called GU games since the early 2000s. Yeah. You've been a part of the Adirat since the, the mid-90s. Yeah. You know, I, I guess that leads me to my last and final question. Because you've done this for, for quite some time, and you've had a tremendous amount of success in different pockets of broadcasting, you and I have been in different settings where young people who want to get into your shoes come up and ask you. And I've always been impressed with how gracious you are with your time and how honest you are with your advice and your feedback. If there's a young student athletes that's listening to to our podcast, what would your advice be to that person if they want to get into the sports broadcasting world? Learn English, first and foremost. I mean, you know, be a master at English language. I mean, I, I think that, you know, to speak it well, you really have to to know it. And, you know, and had I, if I was able to go back and do all of this over, I think that in college I would have majored in grammar if I could have, right, or at least English and, and really learn that. But, you know, I, I think first and foremost, Dan, you just have to set your goals on, on what it is you want to do in the business, you know, and have a dream and, and put it out there. And then don't ever say no. You know, if somebody asks, if you want to be a sportscaster and somebody says, hey, we need a camera operator for the newscast on Saturday morning at 3 a.m., you say, yes, I'll be there at 2.30 ready to go. And I, I don't think it's any different than anything else in life. Uh, relationships make this world go around. If you can't shake a hand and you can't look somebody in the eyeballs, uh, when you do that, then you're probably, your talent will only carry you so far because you know this getting to the nba everybody there is good so you got to be able to do something that separates yourself from the others and the higher you go in any career right the better the people are that are going to be around you so you got to be able to set yourself around if you can shake a hand and look somebody in the eye and develop a relationship that way i think it'll help you a lot but so learn english don't ever say no regardless of what the job is uh, feel fortunate that you're in the industry doing whatever it is. This is a creative outlet, and we're also lucky to be in it. And then develop relationships. Spend time. Uh, if you're trying to get into a newsroom somewhere and it's in a different city that you want to be in, make sure that you're you're hounding that news director or that general manager all the time. Get them on the phone. Buy them lunch. Do whatever you got to do to develop that relationship. And and doors will open. I mean, doors will open. Greg. Appreciate your time. I will leave you with this. So in all the conversations that I've had for our Scoreboard Live Washington Today podcast, the underlying message and theme and a lot of people's advice, similar to what you just gave, is success in the sports world outside of your talent to play at that level, whether it's coaching, broadcasting, becoming a front office executive, is relationships and building your network. Uh, Tremendous stories tremendous advice greg we appreciate you joining Dad, yeah, good to see you man it's too bad it's too bad that we have to do this over you know what do we call the zoom and by the way this is my first zoom that i've done wow uh, it's my very <laughs> first one so but uh, i've been watching listening and uh you're doing a great job but then i just gosh i think what was it steve kerr right before me he was uh he we just released Steve Kerr a couple days ago, so yes. Wow. Wow, I feel it's, it's you're down at the bottom of the barrel. Does that mean you're running out of guys, or what's the deal? <laughs> uh, I won't say that yet. I won't yeah. say that. We have, we yeah, have I'm that, just uh, kidding. 
Well, I'm not going to name names, but our third <laughs> broadcast partner. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, hello to Richard. Dano, stay safe, and, and uh, I hope everybody's well. Great having right. me on. Appreciate Thank you. Take care, Greg. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube